The information in this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. Welcome back to episode 55 of the Practice of Being Seen podcast. Today's episode is titled Own Your Shit in Love, a Valentine's conversation to help you deepen your relationship. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong, relationship therapist and mentor. The Pobscast is a collection of connectfulness conversations where we join together with therapists and anyone interested in deep restorative transformation. We examine how to create ripples of change within ourselves and within the world around us. As therapists, couples come to us for a myriad of reasons, but often the real reason why they're showing up is the thing that's hidden underneath their reasons. The solution is nearly always found in holding a magnifying lens up to those moments of conflict and, as this week's guest Shane Burkell says, owning our own shit. Suddenly, why is he or she doing this to me shifts into an opportunity to sit with our emotions and recalibrate our connections. Shane is no stranger to these magnifying glass moments. Together, we discuss the ways that raising kids can shift a relationship in positive ways the lessons we get from failure, the differences in what men and women want in relationships, why it's so important to create intentional spaces for difficult conversations, and why mindfulness is the antidote to loneliness. Shane is a licensed marriage and family therapist with a private practice in New Hampshire, and he's also the host of the podcast about the practice of couples therapy called The Couples Therapist Couch. Let's dive in. Shane, thank you so much for being here with us today. I'm so excited for this conversation and where we're going to go. Hey, Rebecca. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. It's so good to see you. It's so good to see you again. I love the fact that you and I have been getting to know each other lately. We've been having these opportunities, both some of Terry Reel's trainings and then just through some consultation that we've been doing together online that we've really been getting to know each other. And so I'm excited to share more of you with my listeners. I know it's been really nice. It feels like we've been able to share our journeys together more recently, and I'm looking forward to where that goes in the future too. Yeah, me too. Me too. We have a lot of awesome things on the agenda for 2018 and beyond. Yeah. I wanted to bring you on today because you're the host of the Couples Therapist Couch podcast, and I know enough about your work to know where all of your awesomeness shines through, and I always love your insight whenever we're consulting about cases and otherwise. But I thought maybe a good place for us to start would be just with the very basic, what's a typical issue that couples come into you for? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, when I think about this question, I think about what couples actually come in saying is their problem. And then I think about what ends up actually being the problem, because I think it's often quite different from what they think it is coming in. And, you know, a lot of times couples will come in and they'll say, we just can't agree about finances or we just can't communicate or we just are having issues in our sex life or whatever the things that they state as being the problem. And yes, those are all things that we might get to, that we might talk through, that we can have a better way of communicating about. But I feel like when people start saying that they're having problems with their communication, to me, that there's a flashing light that goes off that says, I'm not being heard, I'm not being understood, I'm not being seen by my partner. 
You know, and I think a lot of times that's what makes partners act angry or blatant or frustrated is this feeling that their partner isn't understanding where they're even coming from. It's like, I'm trying to love you and you're not letting me. And then it just turns to an explosive fight where they don't feel that love or caring at all for each other. Yeah. I find myself often having a very similar conversation with a lot of clients when they're calling me for the initial calls where they're telling me the problem is communication issues. And then as even just in the first like five minutes that we're talking to each other, we go right there to that place of not being seen, heard or understood. Yeah. Yeah. It's that disconnect. Because when I think, and Terry says this too, right? Terry Real, he says, when partners are feeling connected when they're in a state of connection, they don't have a problem communicating. They only have those problems when they're already disconnected. Yes. Yeah. Well, and so, you know, and maybe I can get a little bit into my own story to use as a framework for having this discussion about relationships. Oh, I would love that. This is the practice of being seen. That's right. (laughs) I, I prepped myself to get personal here. So... I think that there is that time, a lot of people have this experience when they first start a relationship where there is this excitement, you know, and it's been, uh, I should know exactly, but it's been, I don't know, 12, 13 years or something since I met my wife. And even back then, 13, 14 years ago, there were dating websites. And I remember being on a dating website on the computer. There weren't apps yet, but, you know, flipping through people's pictures and profiles and thinking that I'm going to find this one person out of all these thousands of people that there's this one person who's going to fulfill all of my needs and complete me and make me whole. All of them. All of them. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. And that's what we think starting off a relationship, you know, and so, and my wife's name is Andrea. And when we started dating, and again, I think a lot of people experience this, there's this feeling of excitement, like, oh my gosh, there's finally someone who gets me. And we have this chemistry and we have this energy between us and it feels like love and it is love. It becomes love. But I think, you know, whether it's a few months down the road or a few years down the road, most couples get to a point where they're not feeling that same kind of energy with their partner anymore. And I think it's an opportunity for growth. I think it's a normal phase in their relationship. But so often couples experience this and they say, well, they either say, well, I guess we're not really in love. I guess that what you showed me at the beginning isn't who you really are. Or You they, lied to me. You weren't being truthful. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. How often do we hear that? Oh my gosh, every um, day? Yeah. Or they say, well, they get sort of resigned. Like, well, my parents have lived together the last 40 years and haven't really been happy. And so I guess that's what I'm looking at for us. Resigned to this reality that they can't have more intimacy and connection with each other. And I think that where a lot of couples start feeling like they can't communicate anymore is because we aren't really owning our shit. And I know that that's true for me, you know, in my relationship with Andrea, let's say, you know, a year into it or two years into it, that all of a sudden that, you know, lovey-dovey phase is sort of over and we're getting more settled into our life. And then, you know, one big issue for me is getting out the door. Like, let's say that we're going away for the weekend or something and we're packing 
and we're racing around and we're trying to pack food. Like I just get so stuck in my head. I think it comes from anxiety or something like that. And I get, well, I used to get really nasty, you know, and I'd be like, why aren't we out the door? We're going to be late. You know, I can't believe that you're doing this to me. Like that would be sort of the vibe of what I was saying to her as if she was doing something to me to make my life worse. And that's the place where, you know, she and I may have gone to couples therapy and said, we have an issue whenever we try to pack for a trip and get out the door. And the issue is not getting out the door. The issue is that I'm not owning my stuff. I'm not coming from a place of vulnerability. And, you know, and, I, and you and I can maybe can get into a little bit of yeah. differences between men and women in this too, because men tend to blame everything else and everyone else for their issues because it's hard. Like we don't want to be weak. We don't want to feel like there's something wrong with us. So I would say you are making it so that we don't get out the door. If you just didn't do this to me, then I'd be fine. There's nothing wrong with me. It's you. You're running late. That's the problem. Yeah. You just don't know how to make a sandwich fast enough. (laughs) I find this so interesting because there's a few things as you were just sharing your story. And I think, you know, this is only the beginning of your story. You've obviously learned a lot since you started to have these moments in your relationship. But these are teaching moments, right? That's why we're sharing them in this kind of opportunity. And as you're talking about owning our shit, right? Like that this is the work. This is the crux. This is the thing that all of us are on this kind of journey of learning how to do to some extent or another. There was another thing that you said that to me feels like it's just one of those like magnifying glass moments where it's a really great opportunity when we hear ourselves saying things like this to kind of hold that magnifying glass up and be like, oh, there's that opportunity to own your shit. It's the phrase, why are you doing this to me? Right? I feel like whenever anybody kind of has one of those moments and they're saying, why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to me? You're doing this. This is your fault. Things like that. These are all like those magnifier glass moments where we could go like, oh, okay, wait, what's really going on underneath this for me? Yes. Yeah, totally. And I think you can really magnify that when we think about kids and I know you have little kids and my yep. kid, so I have um, a daughter who's seven and a son who's five you know, and I'm thinking back to even, let's say when they were infants or something like that. So here's this little baby who doesn't know what's going on and it's three o'clock in the morning and they're crying and they can't be soothed. And I'm trying to, you know, do the right thing and be a good dad and hold them or whatever. But there's this overwhelming anger that comes over me in that moment of like, why are you doing this to me? Like you little baby. (laughs) yeah, Yeah. And it's totally off. Yeah. In that but moment. It's true. It's honest. Yeah. yeah. I think these feelings come over us in so many different ways. And it's, I think it's easier to talk about as a parent talking about an infant because it's easier to extrapolate and see kind of where it's off. But the very same thing happens to us in all of our relationships all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, unfortunately, it often happens and we're not even aware of it. Yeah. Can we talk about that? I feel like that's so important that the stuff that we're not aware of that's happening in our relationships. And I know this is someplace that you dive into a lot. So I have an example of a client who I worked with where it's a male and a female partner. And the wife was saying, you know, I hate the way that you talk to our three-year-old. You know, when our three-year-old is just upset, waking up, 
and you yell at him and tell him like he shouldn't be waking up in the middle of the night that he should just go back to sleep like and you know and then we started to explore like well what was it like with your parents and it came out that with his dad you know everyone just sort of knew they were supposed to leave him alone everyone was tiptoeing around his dad's emotions all the time there was always this fear that if somebody bothered him that they would be yelled at and we talked about it and i said did you feel comfortable opening up and talking to your dad and he said, no, absolutely not. I don't feel comfortable with that. I mean, we have a fine, you know, people always qualify it. They're like, oh, our relationship's fine. I know he loves me. We never hug. We never say we love each other, but it's fine. We just know it. And if you keep digging and digging, there's often so much more emotion attached to it and so there's much more so disappointment. Much. And you can really get people to open up more to, to emotions they didn't even know they had there. Yeah. And so for this guy, we illustrated the point that you are doing to your son, your three-year-old son right now, what your dad did to you. That you are teaching your son, when you have difficult emotions, I will yell at you and make you feel uncomfortable to express them to me. And so throughout the rest of your life, you should just avoid bringing up anything important or difficult or meaningful with me. And putting that right in his face and showing him what he's doing to his son by, you know, it's an unspoken message that he's giving his son. And I think that, that it's such an opportunity. And for a lot of times, you know, men won't acknowledge it for themselves, but they will for their kids. Mm -hmm. That when he can see that this is what he's doing to his kid, he has such a stronger motivation to want to do something about it and change it. So you think that for men, the leverage point is often in, even in parenting, maybe even above and beyond the relationship. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. That's interesting. That's another big part of this. Well, and I'll come back to my own story about not owning my stuff, which is, you know, I think from a young age, I experienced a lot of anxiety and depression and loneliness in my life and had no idea how to open up emotionally. But I had this sense that I wanted to help other people. Like I wasn't even capable of taking care of my own needs, but there was some sense that if I could help other people and heal other people that maybe I would find some fulfillment in meeting the needs of people. And so, you know, I think that's what got me is a long story, maybe not for today, but got me on the path to become a therapist where I ended up helping other people. But it came from a place of not wanting to acknowledge that I needed help for myself, that I was going to be some sort of knight in shining armor for other people, that not acknowledging my own vulnerability. And so that's something that I've had to come to terms with and learn that, you know, I need to express what I need for myself coming from a place of that vulnerability. Yeah. I'm curious, you know, you went from a place of talking to us before about owning your shit and having that, why are you doing this to me thought in regards to your relationship with your wife. And now you're talking to us about this importance of owning your vulnerability and the work that has taken you to get to where you are now. How does this show up differently now in your relationship? And how do you see, you know, when you help other couples do this work in their relationships, what's the difference that you see? Is there like a decreased sense of loneliness? Is there more connection? Yes, it's a good question. And my wife and I have done a ton of work on this, but it's amazing how it's still a struggle. But it does feel 100% better than it has in the past. And so a big part of that is 
you know, dozens and dozens of conversations that she and I have had over the course of time to where when we're in that moment now where we're packing, trying to get out the door, for one thing, I'm able to see what's going on with myself more quickly. Yes. I still have those feelings. Mm -hmm. I still feel bullshit about the situation, but I'm much better at catching myself and saying, okay, take a deep breath. What's going on for me? You're regulating yourself in a different way. Yes. And then if I communicate it to her, it's not, what the fuck is wrong with you? It's like, hey, I'm in one of those moments, you know, I'm feeling that because of what I went through with my parents when we tried to get out the door when I was a kid. See, at that right there, that's such an illustrative shift. And I think this is something that so many of us need help remembering is that it goes from the place of what's wrong with you? I'm blaming you. You're the problem to I'm seeing why I'm struggling right now. And I want to let you know and bring you into that story. Yes, that's so key, you know, with the couples we work with. And I always try to remind people that you can't control the feelings because I think that sometimes it it gets misinterpreted. And again, you know, I hate to generalize, but particularly for men, that they think that bottling up the feelings is the same as taking care of them. But when you're bottling them up, they're still there. They haven't been acknowledged and validated and they're going to come out in a, in a way that's explosive or angry or resentful or something at, at a, some point. Can we talk a little bit about that for a minute? Because I find you know, both men and women, actually, it's not exclusively men or women, but I find that oftentimes there are those more rageful, angry feelings that take over and couples can get caught in a cycle of when the feelings that are really needing the tending to and the attention are the ones that are underneath it, the more vulnerable, the loss, the grief, the sadness, the hurt, that there's something maybe more primary underneath that, that is so protected by the more angry, rageful feelings. Yes. Yeah. And I think when people go there, well, first of all, like you're saying, it's so protected. So they avoid it. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've felt this in your office as well, but like that couples are so protected that first of all, they're not even aware of it. They haven't even identified it for themselves. But second of all, that they swipe it away at every opportunity. You know, when, when we start questioning in a way that goes a little bit deeper, that people are often like, no, 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 you know, like swiping it away, like not going to go there. That's fine. Let's talk about this instead. And you know, when that happens, that there's something really important. There's something really important there. (laughs) Yeah. So it can be a challenge to figure out how to get there. Do you find that there are ways that it always shows up? Well... One way is sort of something we, were, we mentioned a few minutes ago, which is questioning about the family of origin, about their growing up in their family and with their parents. Yeah. I so often get this answer of like, oh, well, I, my family was just normal. I grew up in a normal family setting. I usually sit there and stare at them for a minute and I'm like, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> what is normal for you? And then the more they talk about it, the more it comes out like, oh, I didn't grow up like that. I didn't know that was something families do. I didn't like, there's so much to learn there. And if we just take that at face value, it's a missed opportunity 
to dig a little deeper. I find that those moments and sessions with couples are so powerful. Oftentimes, partners will turn to each other by the end of the session and say, I just learned so much about you. Yeah. Yeah. And what an opportunity for them to witness that with Mm -hmm. each other. Yeah. And also, you know, I think this also speaks to that loneliness and that disconnect and the difficulty in communicating that couples have is that here we might sit with a couple for one session, maybe it's 90 minutes or so, and they learn something about each other that in all the years they've been together, they've never had the opportunity to learn or haven't known even given themselves permission to go to. Yes. So, and now you're making me think about you know, sort of how this plays out on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, because I'm thinking about, you know, we don't have the conversations that come up in couples therapy in our day-to-day lives in general. We have to well, be very... some of us geek out on it, but yeah. <laughs> Maybe if you're a couples therapist. <laughs> but we have to be very intentional about setting up space for that. And... I think that it so often happens, and especially when people have kids, that you're just trying to survive. And oftentimes, both people are working, both people are trying to take care of the kids, just trying to get by with what needs to happen for the house. And you end up at the end of the day, and well, I I often get couples in their first stress or conflict that they bring up, it's almost like a contest. Like, well, I did this, this, and this. Well, I did this, this, and this. Well, you never see when I do this, this, and this. Well, you never see. And it's like, they're both so overwhelmed and flooded with how busy and stressed and how much they're doing that they... It's a tit for tat. Yeah. And what they're really asking for is, can you please appreciate me and see how hard I'm trying in this situation? Can you and see me? Can you understand yeah, me? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think if assuming they're not in one of those kinds of back and forth arguments, then it's 10 o'clock at night and they're both sitting on the couch and one person is watching a show and the other person is on their phone playing games or on Facebook and they're completely zoned out and they're fried. And so they may be sitting right next to each other and living their lives alongside each other, but they're not connecting, you know, and that can go on for years and people aren't really, you know, and, you know, I know I've sat there many a time, you know, and my wife says something and I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh, you know, and I'm just like zoned out and she's like, that doesn't even work as an answer to my question. You know, like I'm totally not even paying attention. And I think couples end up feeling like over time, like we can't bring up important stuff to each other. Like my partner isn't capable of hearing the important stuff that I want to bring up. And so they just give up trying. And I don't think it's that their partner's not capable. I think that they need to identify and create space for that. And there needs to be oftentimes a limit to... Like, listen, from just from 10 o'clock to 10.15, let's put our devices down. Let's turn the TV off. Let's turn toward each other and talk for 15 minutes. And then we can watch a show together or whatever. But like that, you know. I love the way you're framing this because what I'm really hearing you're saying is before we disconnect and zone out, let's be intentional about creating a space to connect. Yes. And especially when it comes to the difficult conversations and the stuff that really matters, where we both really need to feel appreciated and seen and understood, 
we need to carve out that intentional space for those connecting points. It doesn't have to be a long time. We don't have to sit in it for four hours, but we need at least five minutes each to be in that space together. Right. Right. Because if it's not coming out in that kind of space, then it's coming out in other ways that are really unhealthy and toxic, I think, in their relationship. Well, I think that's when we end up with the couples or we hear the stories of the people who have, you know, we were up all night long. We got no sleep because we were fighting all night and neither of us really ever hurt each other. And he still doesn't get me or she still doesn't get me. That's coming from the other side of the place where, you know, you're in crisis mode now. Yeah. And it's funny because couples will be, you know, will report how busy they are and you'll say, you know, can you just carve out 10 minutes, you know, maybe three times a week, 10 minutes. And they're like, no, no, we don't have time for that. I, you know, I, we need to like, we need our downtime. We need like to relax, blah, blah, blah. And then they'll come back and they'll be like, oh yeah, we've spent, you know, on three different nights this week, we spent two hours fighting over blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you're already carving out the time. You're just not doing it in a healthy way. In an intentional way, right? Yeah, totally. And I think that it's really about preventing those ways that it comes out when you don't have control, doing it in a much more controlled way. So staying on this theme of like kind of preventative medicine, of owning our shit, of carving out these intentional spaces for difficult conversations, what would you typically prescribe that couples do together in these intentional moments? What do you encourage them to talk about? What kind of depth are you reaching for there with them? Well, that's a great question. And it probably depends on the couple. Sometimes I like to tell couples a lot too, like don't put a huge amount of pressure on yourselves to have to have some sort of in-depth conversation at the core of your humanity, you know, blah, blah, blah. Because I think when couples bring that kind of pressure to those moments, then they feel disappointed if they're just talking about their coworkers or something like that. And so that might come up at times, but the deeper stuff, but just to create the space, I think is a good start. And then... Well, can I just pause you there? Yeah. Because what I really just heard was in lowering the pressure, you're increasing the connection or the satisfaction. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not so much about the what you talk about, but it's about the fact that you are talking. Yes. Yes. And I like to use the five love languages with couples sometimes because it helps them identify ways that they can show love to their partner. And so, you know, for some partners, they might like to hear a lot of words of affirmation. For some partners, they might just, you know, if their love language is physical touch, they might just want to have their shoulders touching each other while they're watching a show together. Like just how are you connecting with your partner in a way that they feel loved? And I think, you know, one thing that I do that I think is really helpful would be something like prescribe for them not to have sex for the next week. It's one of my favorites also. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's so much not being said in these conversations, you know, where, Let's say that I'm a partner who is asking for more sex in the relationship and I'm sitting there for 15 minutes listening to you talk about your coworker and the whole time I'm like, is this enough emotional expression where I can have sex after this? Or maybe I'm not even thinking that, but I then like put my arm around my partner while we're watching TV and then she's sort of uncomfortable because she's like, well, does he think this is going to lead to sex? And there's this tension because we know that there's that elephant in the room that we haven't really dealt with and we don't need to at this moment, but it's making it so that we're not as connected and just taking that pressure 
off the table. And you could do that with other issues too. You could say, you're not allowed to talk about finances this whole week. I wonder what you guys would actually be arguing about if you weren't arguing about finances. And I think it really helps couples to get away from those superficial topics that they think are the problem. And then, you know, hopefully we're encouraging them to get more connected to what they're feeling like they're not getting in their relationship. And I think they can get in touch with those feelings about what they're not getting in their relationship through almost any conversation, right? Like I was having a conversation with my husband last night and it doesn't even matter what we were talking about. He got distracted by the ding on his phone. And when he was done with being distracted, we had a moment where we had to recalibrate and regroup because I had felt a little abandoned in the midst of whatever I had been talking about as it probably was totally not even something that was so relevant, but it was the way that he disconnected for me to respond to his phone was the thing that brought up all these feelings for me. So we had a recalibration moment and it was fine. I mean, these things happen. They happen in every relationship. The point is that we got back to our center and we did recovered from that pretty quickly because we were both kind of aware of, oh, wait, something happened and it didn't feel good. And it didn't take very long to get back to that. But if we hadn't had that awareness, if we hadn't owned our own shit and we hadn't carved out the time and the, the moment for that conversation, there would have been a lot of pressure on that moment. Yeah, that's such a good example where I'm sure you guys have had several conversations before leading up to that moment. So you can almost just look at him and be like, hey, you know, this is one of those times where I'm feeling abandoned. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember we talked about that a few times before. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I forgot that I'm going to be more intentional about not looking at my phone. And you can, you've already had the conversation. And so you can acknowledge each other's and see each other much more quickly. And I think this is what is so helpful. Couples need to realize that relationships take practice and take work and that it's like building muscles when, while exercising, that you have to put that effort into it and then it gets a lot easier. I totally agree with that, that they take practice and they take work. I think it's also a lot like mindfulness in the way that we don't necessarily get stronger just from doing the reps, but we get stronger from missing the opportunities and remembering how to come back to it. Yes. You know, it's the getting lost that matters. Yes. So, and I think that couples put so much pressure on perfection and so much pressure on not trying hard enough or something like that. And such an important part of the work of owning your own stuff is also building a healthy self-esteem that comes from within you. You know, that I feel confident in myself as a human being that my partner can act like a jerk or react in that moment in a way that feels jerky. And I know that it it doesn't have to do with me. And I know that I still have a strong self-esteem and they still love me and care about me. And so that we don't have to do this perfect every single time. And if we don't, it doesn't mean that we're failing. It means that this is just where we're at in the process. Right. And that failing is also a part of learning. So it's part of the process, you know, so it, it doesn't define us. We're not, you know, doomed as a couple because we had a hiccup and we fell on our face here. We are learning as a couple. And part of that learning is contributed to the fact that we fell on our face here together. Yeah. And as humans, we tend to be very good at making characterological. I don't even know what the word is. Characterological. But like, 
attributing things to someone's character based on what they're doing. So it would have been very easy for you in that situation with your husband to say, oh, my husband's an asshole. He just looks at his phone while I'm trying to talk to him, you know, and to make it about him as a person, which makes it much more difficult to work on. If you're coming from a place of my husband is just an asshole, then how do you change that instead of, you know, you coming from a place of owning your stuff, which is all the way on the other end of the spectrum of saying, I just felt abandoned and communicating that. But even if someone's not even to that point yet, they could say, I feel like my husband's being an asshole in this moment or just did an asshole thing. You know, I don't think he realized it. I'll bring it to his attention so that you can have a more empowering conversation to actually feel like you could make a difference and change. Yeah. And you know, there were so many little things that happened. If I'm just looking at like that little five minute exchange, there were so many things that happened differently the other night than they would have happened a few years ago. You know, there's been a lot of growth in our relationship. One of the things I noticed is that when I started to feel that abandonment, the first thing I did was I just sat with myself. You know, I I tried not to go into a place of critique, but I just sat with myself and I stayed with what I was feeling. And then when he was done and he started coming back to me, he was the one who initiated the reconnection. And he saw that I was staying with myself. And that also prompted him to be like, oh, what just happened? So there was a lot of little opportunities in there, a lot of little finessed, really well-rehearsed, really well-practiced reconnecting moments between the two of us that have happened in there that we only have now because of all the times that we have practiced not getting them right. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it can really snowball the progress. It can snowball, yeah. yeah. Yeah, because you have that foundation. Yeah, the foundation is so important. You know, I think it's so interesting. I keep thinking about relationships in a very mindfulness kind of capacity because when I think about what mindfulness is and when we talk about, you know, when you hear experts in mindfulness talking, And they say, like, how do you deal with these huge existential crises of, like, life and death? And when you're on your deathbed, like, what's the thing that can prepare you? And they say it's it's really, it's a lifetime of practicing mindfulness. You know, you don't don't just get it right away. It, It takes practice and it takes a lot of attention and attunement. And I think it's very much the same with relationships. It's an ongoing journey of working it together, of doing the work. Yeah. And I love thinking about it that way, whether it's with your partner or with your kids or your whole family. Or with yourself. Oh, yes. Good. (laughs) Or with yourself. Absolutely. That we all have ways that we distract ourselves and we avoid being present and being mindful. You know, whether we work too much, whether we drink too much, whether we watch just zone out on TV, whatever it is for whatever reason, our brains seem to be wired to avoid that being present and being mindful. And the more that we challenge ourselves to do that, the more that we feel fulfilled in our relationships and the more we feel abundance in our life and the more that we feel connected to ourselves, I think. Yeah. And I think that's one of the greatest ways to combat that loneliness, you know, is to stay present, to not leave, to not dissociate. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I do think, you know, because we've been doing a lot of the training with Terry Real and stuff like that, it's become so clear to me how we are socialized from a very young age 
to fit into certain roles and how that can make it so difficult to be present and to be accepting in a lot of these situations. And, you know, one thing I think about is the idea of the knight in shining armor. You know, the uh, imagining myself on this dating website, finding this person who's going to heal all the things that I need, that we are conditioned as boys, you know, and who become men to think that we need to be strong. We need to fight for what we want. We need to not be vulnerable, but that we are going to go out there and slay the dragon and be the knight in shining armor and work hard and do what we're supposed to do, that we will eventually be deserving of having that love, that we need someone else in order to get that love and vulnerability, that that will be bestowed on us by our partner. It's this deservingness piece. Like there has to be something you overcome that it's bestowed upon you that this speaks so much to the esteem and also to the vulnerability. Yeah, that performance-based esteem, that feeling that I'm only worthy as a person as long as I'm producing some results in my life or something like that. Now, there are like three different kinds of esteem, right, that we can work on. There's that performance-based, like how I show up, how you deem me worthy. Yeah. And then attribute-based esteem, which is that I'm worthy because I'm strong enough or I'm beautiful enough or I'm smart enough. Or, and then there's the healthy self-esteem. I think that's the three. But yeah, I remember hearing that there's different forms of self-esteem to build within us to have a healthy sense of self-esteem. And there's this outer esteem that we gather from how others see us. And then there's this more internalized view of ourselves among these different types. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that when people show up in our office, that there's this frustration, like I'm doing everything I'm supposed to be doing. I'm doing everything I think in my mind that would be deserving of having the relationship I want. And my partner still wants more from me. My partner still wants me to open up and be vulnerable. But it's in conflict with this idea that I'm not supposed to be vulnerable. I'm supposed to be strong and I'm supposed to defeat everything that's in my path. I think it makes people feel very confused and helpless to know what to do in their relationships. Men in particular. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. How do you feel? I mean, I might be taking us off course here a little bit, but, you know, in our culture and in our society today, there's a lot of conversations happening around, you know, the Me Too movement and women really not standing for inequality. And I'm certainly seeing a ripple effect from these cultural conversations showing up in my office with among couples, even if it's more implicit, you know, in terms of the topics that couples are bringing forth more readily these days, as opposed to even, you know, six months ago or a year ago, I'm, I'm seeing a shift. I'm wondering if you're seeing that too, or if you're experiencing a connection between the work you're doing individually with each couple and just what's happening in society at large. Yeah, absolutely. And I love it. I love that people are feeling more empowered to just have the conversations. But I've seen a lot of discomfort in men in particular, or this feeling of being attacked or this feeling of, well, that doesn't have anything to do with me. You know, and it's the same kind of thing that happens with any sort of privilege. You know, it's like 
when sometimes when white people are confronted with the reality of racism, they feel very uncomfortable and dismissive. And they're very much like, well, that's not me. That's not about me. And it just closes down the conversation. And I think that that's a huge key of what's happening now is that people are feeling more and more comfortable to continue opening up the conversation and talking about it and being able, you know, even as men to be supportive and loving and realize that this is good for everyone, that we need this. And I think that goes back to some of the stuff we were talking about as far as the things that we don't even realize are playing out. You know, this reality that I grew up as a boy and what that means for being encouraged in certain ways and what that means as far as being told not to be weak. And, you know, that I forgot what the research shows that, but it's like by the time girls are like 10 years old or something, they've already learned to stop asking certain questions. They've already learned to start tiptoeing around men's feelings. They've already learned, you know, that they shouldn't bring up certain topics or something like that. And so it's very real and people don't even realize it's playing out. And I think people feel like personally attacked if you say, you know, men have privilege or something, but it's so important to understand I find it fascinating, you know, that there are so many different ways that it affects us. It affects the way that a couple may connect intimately in a physical way when we're talking sexually, right? That oftentimes there are studies out there that say that how men and women would rate pleasure are totally different because men are enculturated to talk about what feels good and women are enculturated to not. So, Oftentimes, when a man would say something, even like this whole conversation that has recently been going on in social media land around like bad sex, right? Like what is bad sex for a man? It's probably like, eh, it wasn't so great. But for a woman, bad sex is like, you know, it was awful. Like she was hurting. And these conversations aren't typically had. And so when couples come in and they're talking about their disconnect intimately in their relationship, I think there's often a lot of things that we're leaving out because men and women have different languages for what feels good and what doesn't feel good in their relationship. Yeah, I was just reading an article just like that. And it's so great to see that these conversations are being had, and but there's so much more work to do with it. And I think, I think you're exactly right. And in the relationships themselves, you know, I can speak from experience in my own relationship that when you start talking about sex, there's something psychological, something emotional that comes up that feels so intense. It's very difficult to move forward in those conversations without having some sort of strong reaction that makes it difficult to move forward with. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a more vulnerable place for many. Yeah. You know, talk absolutely. about performance-based anxiety and the pressure. and Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's interesting that, you know, so often men, part of what they want from their sexual relationship with their partner is to please their partner. You know, there's this, they, they, I think that's what men want in general from their relationships is to please right. their partner. Right. There's this reality that, you know, I just want everyone to be happy and leave yeah. me alone yeah. and then we'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if women necessarily want the same thing. Absolutely not. They want their man to be present and open and relational. Yeah. And to connect with them. And then, you know, how many times I think I can, you know, within the past week, I think at least five different men have sat in my office and said, well, I don't want to be a pussy. 
Really? Oh, yeah. yeah. That's... Those words come up. I'm you glad know? they're actually saying it. Oh, they're saying it and we're going yeah. deeper. But like, you know, these are things that men will say because they're enculturated to not be the things, the very things that these women are asking them to be. Yes. Yes. I have so many examples of men who are just sort of want to live life in a way like, let me live on my island. Let me know what you need once in a while, as long as it doesn't bother me too much. I'll leave you alone. You leave me alone. And can we just get by and coast along the rest of our lives? Yes. And they're not happy and they're not healthy and it's not good for them. But they would rather do that than to actually face the fear of being intimate. Because talk to me a little bit about what that fear of intimacy is. What does that represent? Where does that go? (sighs) Wow. Yeah, that's a big question. And I think, you know, part of it is what you just said, which is I'll be a pussy or I'll be weak in some way if I go there. But I think if men could more accurately identify or acknowledge, I think it's even deeper. I think it's a fear of if I depend on someone else, if I open up to someone else, then I can be hurt in a way that I try to avoid at all times by staying closed off in my life and only depending on myself. That I'm exposing myself in a way that someone could hurt me worse than anything else in the world. So, you know, I think this is a place where what we're really talking about is how vulnerability has such different meanings also for men and women. For women, it's a connection point. And for men, it's often veiled in fear and in maybe I'll be rejected or... Totally. Yeah. A lot of rejection feelings for men. Yeah. And so I think, you know, as we're opening up these conversations and saying to couples, you know, the antidote here is to become more vulnerable. We also have to understand that the very prescription has different meanings for, you know, people who are raised and enculturated in different ways, even within the same society, maybe because of their gender or other reasons. Yeah. Well, it's really important, you know, and I think this is a really good part of what Terry Real says too, which is that, you know, therapists over the last 20 years or whatever have done a really good job of listening and loving up their clients and being loving and supportive. But that's only half of the of what needs to happen in the therapy, in the space of therapy, and that we need to also challenge our clients. We need to be directive with them. We need to speak to them about what they're missing and what they need to do in a way that's more confrontational. And I think that that's, you know, much more helpful or it can be helpful to a lot of people in making the progress that they're trying to make. Oh, I love it. Shane, I so enjoyed this conversation with you today and I am sure that our listeners will too. Can you tell everyone how to reach you, where they can find you? I know there's at least two different websites. Yeah, absolutely. I've really enjoyed this too. Thank you so much for having me on. So if people want to connect with me, I'm on Facebook, Shane Burkle. That's B-I-R-K-E-L. That's also my practice website, shaneburkle.com. And then there's a website for the Couples Therapist Couch. That's the name of the website.com. And there's the Couples Therapist Couch Facebook group that you can join if you're interested in learning more about that too. That's a podcast where I interview couples therapists about the practice of couples therapy. And so I'd love to have everyone check that out. It's a wonderful podcast too. I think everyone should definitely head on over there and subscribe and listen. 
Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I just released an episode with Harriet Lerner, who I consider to be like a legend, which was a great conversation about apologizing, which was awesome. Yeah, I just noticed that this morning and I was going to listen to it later today when I take my girls to their afternoon activities. That's on my listening list. So I'm excited to listen to that one. I love her TED Talk. Yes, yes, she's, yeah. she has a good sense of humor. Yeah, she does. So thank you so much again, Shane. Really appreciate yeah. it. Thank you, Rebecca. I hope we can talk again soon. Oh, for sure. Let's definitely keep this conversation going over in the Pobscast community on Facebook. Or send me an email at practiceofbeingseen at gmail.com. I always love hearing from you. There's a link to click in the show notes if you're interested in working with me to find out more about my therapy or mentorship services or my private couples intensive retreats. I'm also planning some really interesting retreat events for couples where at least one partner is a therapist. It's too early to say, but there's a chance that our guest from today's show may be joining us at that retreat. We'd be holding that retreat in October of 2018, and if you're interested, do make sure that you are on our Pobs Therapist newsletter. The Practice of Being Seen podcast is produced by me, Rebecca Wong, along with the support of my amazing behind-the-scenes team, Nicole Stevenson and Christy Hausler. Music by Chris Ferris Jr. and Sr., produced by Kidney Stone Studio. We hope that you enjoyed the show and that you'll join us next week for another episode of The Pobscast, brought to you by Connectfulness. <laughs> <laughs>